This is the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, episode number 15. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. We'll help you on your fly fishing journey with classic stories covering steelhead fishing, fly tying, and much more. How's it going, everyone? Thanks for stopping by the Fly Fishing Show. In today's episode, I interview Peter Charles from hookedforlife.ca and a pro with Airflow Sims, G. Loomis, and other companies. Peter covers tube flies in detail, shows us how to present a fly properly to steelhead, and the unique conditions for picking up chromers on the Grand River in Ontario. He talks about swinging the fly broadside and when to use a downstream men to pick up fish. Peter breaks out some good stuff, including a great story about how he taught his dad to fish, but ended when they got a big eel in the boat and it went berserk. This is a pretty good story. So without further ado, here's Peter Charles from hookforlife.ca. How's it going, Peter? Oh, very good. Very good. Glad to be talking to you, Dave. Good, good. Thanks for coming on. Uh, I was trying to think back. It's funny. There's so many people out there as I get into more and more of these shows uh, as far as steelhead fly fishing specifically. There's a bunch of names out there. I know big names and some of them I, I either, you know, haven't heard much of or haven't talked to or, you know, all the above. And you're one of those guys that I'm excited to have a conversation here because a lot of this stuff is new to me. So I think we're going to dig into definitely some steelhead fly fishing um, tips and things like that. So if you're ready to get started. Uh, sure. Great. Sounds good. Um, how about starting us off with uh, your background, kind of how you got into fly fishing and, and steelhead fishing and, um, you know, ultimately the, the place where you are, where you're kind of, uh, I'm not sure your exact title with, with Sims and some of the other companies, but kind of at a higher level in the industry. Yeah, it started out actually uh, when I was a teenager with a paper route and I saved up my money and I went to Canadian Tire and bought myself a fly rod <laughs> and taught myself how to cast it. Not very well, as you can imagine. And uh, my first fish on a fly rod came, uh, it was a level sinking line, believe it or not. Hmm. I can always remember the fly, it was a black ghost. And uh, I'm out uh, on the St. Lawrence River with my friend in his father's little tin boat, and I hooked about a one-pound smallmouth bass, and I was on my way from that point on. <laughs> and of course, you know, I got married, had kids, so fishing goes by the, uh, you know, the back burner at that stage of the game. And uh, then when we moved out to Southern Ontario in 88, uh, I got uh, back into fly fishing in a big way and I've uh, been doing it ever since. Cool. Cool. And uh, and now you are, what is your title or, or with like Sims and what are, what are the companies that you work with now? Uh, it's uh, Loomis and Shimano. I'm field staff with them. Uh, and also I'm pro staff with uh, Sims and Airflow Fly Lines and the Canadian Tube Fly Company. Okay. And we'll get into some more of this stuff. Um, I definitely like to hear more about the, the tube company and things like that, but what is your, uh, generally, what does that mean? Pro staff, what do you do with these, uh, with these companies mostly? Well, well, generally it's promotional work. Uh, and I do a little bit more than the average guy because I've got the YouTube channel going. Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm able to do product reviews on YouTube and, uh, also show people how the stuff can be used to, uh, catch fish and, you know, improve your game. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, um, but you know, as, as field staff and pro staff, you're really expected to be sort of an ambassador for the company and for the sport. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, I attend, uh, trade shows like I'm actually tomorrow, I'm going to be at the boat and fishing show 
the International Center in, in Toronto, and um, mm-hmm. I'll be there for four days in the Shimano and Loomis booth. Nice. So I I do that kind of work too. Gotcha, gotcha. That sounds great. And uh, yeah, the YouTube channel and things like that. We'll dig into more of this as we go, but I'll uh, provide a link to all of the things we talk about today, including the YouTube. Um, this will be episode 15 at uh, wetflyswing.com slash Peter Charles. Um, I'll have everything under that uh, that URL so people can check it out. Um, yeah, that's that's great. This is definitely uh, showtime uh, for sure. I was chatting with uh, Simon uh, Gosworth uh a while back and he was we were kind of asking him you know i was like how's this the season going and you know are you still as fired up as you as when you started how how is that how does it work for you you know you go through the show season are you at the end pretty pretty tired are you ready to to keep going strong with talking to people and answering questions Uh, at the show it's really your feet i mean your feet your legs are killing you but uh you're still got the enthusiasm at the end of the show you know you're still talking to people and in fact the thing about shows is the more people you engage, the better the show is for you. Yeah, mm-hmm. The whole thing becomes more interesting. Uh, if you just stood around the booth and looked at the, you know, the other exhibitors, it wouldn't be much of a show. So, yeah, I enjoy getting in, talking to people. And, and you're spending four days talking about fishing. So, you know, it's, it's quite good. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, after the show season is over, I'm getting into teaching. So I spend a lot of time on the river teaching people how to fly fish. Hmm. And because uh, I'm a casting instructor, so um, okay. uh, it seems I spend a lot of time either with clients or doing the company work. So uh, my own fishing time becomes a bit precious too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you're, uh, and are you involved in the uh, FFF that, that casting instruction? Yeah, I, I've uh, got my certification with the uh, FFF. And, Perfect. Uh, so that's uh, that's how I got started in the, the instruction game. Cool. Cool. Good deal. And, uh, maybe you can bring us back to, you know, I like to kind of focus on, you know, specific rivers. Do you have a home river and can you talk a little bit about how you, uh, you know, catch steelhead and get other people into steelhead on that river? Sure. Uh, it's the grand river in Southern Ontario. It runs from the Luther marshes in, uh, North of Toronto. Uh, and it's runs about 300 kilometers, uh, down to Lake Erie. And by the time it gets into the lower stretches, it's quite broad uh, in Caledonia, which is close to where I live. The river is close to 200 yards wide hmm. and quite shallow. So uh, at normal flows, you literally could wade the entire river, at, you know, in that stretch. Wow. Um, so it's an interesting river. It tends to run uh, clear in the north and a little dirtier in the south. Uh, so depending on where you're fishing – it feels like you're fishing different rivers. It's higher gradient, clear, you know, the further north you go, further, the closer you get to the source of the river. In the north, uh, right at the very north, uh, beyond Bellwood Lake, it's all smallmouth bass. And then we have a, a tailwater brown trout fishery uh, in Fergus and Alora and below that. And then it gradually changes into warm water fishery where, with a lot of bass uh, fishing and walleye. And uh, then we get into the area where we have some cold water creeks running into the river, and they become the steelhead nurseries for the river, hmm. uh, like uh, Whiteman's Creek and, and uh, the Nith River and, and other uh, tributaries. Hmm. And uh, we have a, a, a natural sustaining run of steelhead that uh, make their run starting in late August, and they'll run up the, the river to these uh, tributaries as the river temperatures start to drop. <laughs> And so it's it's an interesting river to fish 
Uh, and because it's a natural uh, run, it's, there's no stalking, uh, of course, the runs vary from year to year. Some years you have a great number of fish, and some years it's rather thin. That's just like the normal ebb and flow of things. So it's always challenge, challenging to fish for steelhead on that river. You don't have easy days where you just go down, throw your line in the water, and things happen. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you've, you've got to go looking for fish, and you've got to work to get them. Gotcha, gotcha. And are you guys, I was at, uh, I've been out at a couple shows as well recently and was talking to a guy that, um, fishes Alaska for steelhead. Uh, and you know, we were talking up there, he, he was talking all about nymphing because that's pretty much all he does. Um, you know, with all the salmon eggs and things like that, it's hard to, to swing, but, um, are you pretty much all swinging flies or is there any nymphing or different techniques? Well, uh, in the early days of steelhead fishing in Southern Ontario, it was all nymphing. I mean, it was believed that you, uh, steelhead would not move to a fly, that you had to really bang them on the nose with your nymph or your, uh, your egg yarn uh, fly. Uh, and over time, you know, pe- more people started swinging flies. So these days, if you were to go down to Caledonia at the height of the fall season, you, you would see the, I would say, out of all the fly fishermen there, probably 80%, 90% are swinging flies. Uh, and not nymphing. So nymphing on, and this is not an easy river to nymph because it's broad and flat in so many places that you don't get those easily defined seams, which will hold fish and you can just walk up to them and and, and run a nymph down them. Uh, if you you watch the guys with center pin work, the river, they're working like a hundred, 150 foot drifts in all in order to try and uh, expose their, uh, you know, their, egg, their beads or their eggs to, to fish. Right. It's not this sort of, uh, there are other rivers in Southern Ontario where you can fish nymphs effectively because the run is very self-contained and very easily identifiable. You can walk up and go, Oh, there'll be fish in there and bang your nymph in and catch a fish. The grand isn't quite that easy. It's more of a swinging river than anything else because it is so broad. Yeah. And some, some places it's quite featureless. You walk up and if you didn't know the river, you'd look at this and it's just this broad, bland looking run. And you'd say to yourself, where in all of that are the fish? <laughs> uh, and uh, one way to handle it is just to s- try to swing the whole thing and hope for the best. Mm-hmm. Uh, the more time you spend on the river, you get to know where they hold. Yeah. And so you can, you can, get, you can concentrate on those spots. But it is not a river that you can easily uh, identify where the fish are going to be, in, especially in the lower stretch. Yeah. Um, so you don't have so any. It, yeah. So you don't have any like necessarily like buckets within the the bigger runs, or I, it sounds like maybe once you do, you kind of have something like that. Yeah, but they're, they're not. Usually, those buckets are not that easy to see on the surface. Uh, you really find the deeper water by spending your time on the river. And banging your fly along the bottom till you find, oh, it's swinging smoothly. It must be deeper in there. Hmm. Uh, or watching, you know, when you start out, you're watching where the experienced guys are catching fish. Sure. But but from from the surface, you often don't see where they are. Hmm. And and so it becomes a bit of a challenge if you if you don't know the river to catch fish because you really you walk up to it and you say, where do I start? Right. Huh. And. Do you- do you see a lot of changes throughout the the year during the winter? Uh, you know, I guess these are uh, kind of gravel type rivers. Uh, you know, with higher waters and things like that. Things like that. It, it's it's a limestone bottom. Uh, so uh, the the bottom has a very irregular shape because it's eroded out of the limestone and it erodes at different rates. So you have these very unusual features where you might have a ridge that runs across the current instead of with the current. 
you'd expect the the river to scour uh, our ridge, you know, straight down the current, but it doesn't. They, these ridges go in different directions, and they will hold fish in an unusual ways. Um, there's a couple of spots uh, where I fish where I've had to design my flies to ride hook points up because in order to swing a fly through there, you have to be willing to bounce your fly off the rocks, yep. off the ridges, before you can get into the deeper water. And uh, quite often, it's funny, the, the fish will hit the fly as soon as the uh, fly bangs a rock, skips off the rock, and the fish is on it. Wow. Well, this is cool. Uh, you know, I was actually a friend of mine, uh, Eric, I was chatting with at the, uh, we were at the fly fishing uh, film tour and, uh, I was kind of asking him about questions he had and he's fairly new to it. And one of them was just that, like presenting the fly. That's like a big question for him. Like, how do you, you know, how are different ways you know to do that? Do you have any, you know, things you would tell somebody new to teach them how to present the fly a little better? Yes, uh, there's a, a number of things I, I put across when I'm teaching people how to fly fish. And the first thing I tell people is that a prey item does not charge a predator. Hmm. Uh, you've, you'll never see a minnow uh, charging straight at the mouth of a bass. Mm-hmm. Um, hmm. it, prey items, minnows will flee a predator. And so when you present a swung fly, you're trying to swing it in such a fashion that it looks weak. It looks like an easy meal. It looks interesting, and you don't want to be swinging it aggressively at the fish because I've actually done this. I've done run these experiments. Whereas if if you swing your lo- your fly line, uh, your sinking fly line, or your fly at the head of a fish, the fish will flee. <laughs> it will leave. And so I try to teach people when I'm, when people are learning how to fly fish is when you're swinging a fly, make sure it's above their heads, and uh, don't go don't have the fly swinging at them, which means you're going to have to manage the drift. So the fly presents more broadside or tail end first to the fish, mm-hmm. which is more of how the fish will expect to see a prey item go by. Um, if you, if the fly line or the sinking line goes at the face of the fish, they'll take off. Hmm. I actually ran an experiment when fishing for Chinook on, on the credit river. I was using a full sink shooting head. The water was clear. I could see everything that was going on, and I could see this uh, Chinook holding. And uh, I'd, I'd made a few presentations to it. And as you know, with that kind of fishing, sometimes the salmon just aren't interested. They're not right. going to take. So I thought, okay, let's see what uh, what else can go here. And I cast beyond the fish, let my fly line, my sinking shooting head, swing towards the fish. And I just watched the sinking shooting head and that fish move over right to the bank. And my fly line pinned that Chinook to the bank. Hmm. And when I picked my fly line up, it took off like a, you know, like a bat. Right. And it's proof that those fish will not stay put. If you swing your fly or your fly line at them, they'll leave. And so uh, that's the first part is thinking in terms of that. These fish don't have an ego. They're not going to say, Oh, you can't bully me. You're just a little fly. If it, if it looks unnatural, they leave, they're gone. So you have to present, your fly in a way that it's not threatening and better yet, it looks like it's an easy meal, an easy target. Yeah. And the the thing, the other thing I tell people is try to remove as many things that might cause a fish to reject your fly. So as an example, if you're running too short a leader, too stiff a leader, um, you know, these sorts of things, you try to make that fly as appealing as possible 
and minimize the opportunities for the fish to say no. Yeah, that's cool. And yeah, this brings up a, a few questions. Uh, maybe you can clarify just on more of the types of lines and leaders and things like that. If you're using, you know, talking about presenting it, maybe you can go through that real quick. Um, I know, you know, Simon Gosworth was on uh, episode nine uh, on the show here, and he was talking about how he likes to use an intermediate um, um, line, you know, on the Skagit line. And a lot of people don't do that. Do you have a specific uh, line you like to use for these fish? And, and also maybe you can talk about the leader and the fly and the whole setup. You know, you well, know. yeah, I, I, I always uh, look at everything as a comprehensive system. I don't sort of look at my fly lane independent from the leader and independent from the fly and independent from the presentation. It's all got to work together as one system. So I always start with river conditions, you know, high and dirty, low and clear, warm, cold, you know, what's going on in the river, which means where are the fish, which then says, okay, if the fish are here and it's clear, water's cold, low, how am I going to put those fish though that fly? That's how I make my line choice on my leader choice and my fly choice. Mm-hmm. Um, and even the choice of my cast that I use, you know, and whether I go angling downstream or go more across, all those things are, are a deliberate set of decisions driven by how I want to present the fly. So as an example, in cold weather, uh, let's say the water is like one degree Celsius, uh, you know, uh, 34 Fahrenheit. I won't try to use a sink tip system. I'm going to use a slow, a full intermediate, like a, an intermediate long belly. Uh, it's a full intermediate line. It just swings a lot slower and a lot straighter. I think a lot of people don't realize how much bend we get in our sink tip systems. Yeah. And so it presents the fly very slowly. It presents very in a very straight manner. And I'm using very long leaders on my sinking lines. Uh, in a, that full intermediate, I might be as much as 15 foot long. Oh wow! To get to gain separation between the fly and the and the line. And my flies are designed uh, with different sink rates in mind and different performance in the water. For example, a lot of people don't pay any attention to what their fly does when it's in the water. They make the assumption that that 10 foot of T14 is going to do the job for them. It's going to drag the fly down to where the fish are. Um, they really don't have to worry about the swim characteristics of the fly. But that's not true. I've actually seen people using T14 and half th- halfway through the swing, their fly is still near the surface of the water. <laughs> and and, and the, their system is running in a big U shape or a big bowl shape uh, because the, the buoyancy and the drag of the fly is keeping it near the surface. So um, I'm always paying attention to my sink rate of my flies and how they perform in the water. So when I cast out, I know that fly is going to be where I want it to be. It's not guesswork. And um, so everything is a very, very deliberate choice. Hmm. So, for example, uh, taking the reverse scenario, it's uh, early in the season. The water's up a bit. It's a little dirty. Uh, it's warmer. It's around, uh, you know, 15 degrees Celsius, 60 degrees Fahrenheit. And I'm going to use a floating line with maybe nothing more than a fast sink polyliter on the end. Uh, and I'm presenting it, you know, maybe six inches, 10 inches foot under the water. That's it. Mm-hmm. And the fish are coming up for it because, and they're chasing because it's warm and they're more aggressive and they're more active. Mm-hmm. So um, how I, I, I'm using this, the, the, the conditions to dictate what I'm going to do. Right. As opposed to try to go to the river and say, I have a favorite line. I'm only going to use this. Yeah. Do you have, uh, so you use a few different lines. Do you, what, uh, how many different tips do you, 
you know, come to the river with when you get uh, Generally speaking, because of the nature of my river, I can look at the flow rate on the graph uh, before I leave the house and I know what tip I have to take. Yeah. So uh, generally speaking, if I don't know if you've seen the airflow flow tips, if I'm using a Skagit setup, I would use uh, maybe their T, uh, their T7 or their T10 would be most commonly what I'd use in my river. Okay. Um, if uh, another thing I use, I, I still like the old 15-foot uh, factory tips, you know, the old tapered ones. Mm-hmm. So typically in those, I'm using a, an intermediate or a type 3. I, I don't need – because my flies get down on their own, I don't need that heavy sink tip to drag it down. Sure. Sure. Okay. Yeah. And these, uh, and like I said, I'll, I'll, I'll provide links to here, these, uh, lines and tips and things you're talking about in the show notes mm-hmm. again. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about the, um, the Canadian tube fly company. We're talking a little bit about flies here and, yeah. and maybe you could describe what that's all about and how you're connected with it. Well, I'm there, I'm on their pro staff and, uh, what I usually do, uh, for them is put up, uh, basic tube fly videos on uh, YouTube to describe how people can get started in uh, using tube flies. Um, the advantage for me uh, for using a tube fly and the reason why I like using them is it gives me choices about what kind of hook I put on the end. Uh, so depending on how, where I'm fishing it and how I'm fishing it, I can make different choices about the hook for the same fly. Uh, and I also, I can vary the, the sink rate for the same pattern, whether I put it on a plastic tube, aluminum tube, a brass tube, or a copper tube, I'm going to get different sink rates out of the same pattern. So it gives me lots of choices. And so for with Canadian Tube Fly, they're offering a broad range of tubes, you know, the one, like the ones I've just described. And, are, and all, a lot of the materials that they sell are aimed uh, for the Tube Fly market. So when you're buying off of them, you know, you're buying uh, from a company that dedicated to making sure that the stuff you're buying is going to work for you as a tube fly. Okay. Okay. So yeah, that, that's cool. And then, uh, do you have any, uh, fly, as far as fly patterns, any, you know, names or flies that we could, you know, take a look at things that you, maybe your top few patterns you like to use? Yeah, there, uh, have a number of patterns that I use. Uh, they're not common patterns. They're my own, uh, patterns, but they're on YouTube. So you can actually oh, see great. them. Uh, one of them's called uh, emerald shiner. And it's an incredibly sparse fly. Uh, it's basically a tube with a body and a wing. <laughs> There's no and, and some eyes. It, that's it. It's it looks like nothing. A wing and, of of uh, uh, bucktail, bucktail. Bucktail. Oh, cool. Okay, just bucktail, a bit of flash, a white body with a bit of so, a rib. So this would be more and, of your warmer water kind of fly sort of thing, or and maybe you could explain the the fishery there. I'm not totally clear on like the time of year when you're, you know, I guess, I mean, obviously okay. winter time's cold and it, but when does it warm up and, and when are you fishing? That? Okay. Well, all right. That's a good point because it, uh, there's a number of things we have to think about with this river, especially the regulations, the way the, the seasons run. Um, the fishing for steelhead normally starts late August, early September, depending on uh, the temperatures. Uh, and soon as though, as I say, gets around 60 degrees Fahrenheit, you're going to see fish moving into the system, but some will come in earlier. Uh, the fishing usually picks up around October, uh, and through to November, and then it starts to slow down as we hit December. Uh, and, uh, it will, our December fishing really depends on what kind of winter we have, because we have quite a broad variety of winters in Southern Ontario. We've got a bad one this year. We've got lots of snow. It's been cold. Uh, so basically we were shut down by the beginning of December and other, other years we've had hardly any snow. It's warmer and we can fish right up in December 31st when the season closes. Mm -hmm. 
and then the season does not reopen on this river until the uh, fourth Saturday in April. Okay. So that whole stretch from December 31st to the fourth Saturday in April is shut down. There are other places to fish for steelhead in Ontario, but on the Grand River, you know, okay. it's, it's done. Okay. And of course, once, once the springtime rolls around, it's typical spring fishing, water's high, you know, the fish are, you're going to mix bag of fish that are dropping back and fish that are coming up. Gotcha. Gotcha. So the, so this harrowing fly you're talking about here, the sparse fly, when would you be using that and in, in what conditions? I, I'm using it throughout the fall, uh, cold water or, uh, or when it's warm, I just present it differently. Mm. Uh, in, in the warmer conditions, I'm presenting it high, more high in the water column, more broadside to the fish. I'm presenting it faster. Uh, and uh, I'm letting it come across the current. And when it's colder, I'm presenting it in a much, uh, much more slowly and more sort of ascend to the fl- end ascend of the fish yep. uh, and uh, letting it come across, swing across their face much more slowly. Uh, but it's effective no matter what the temperature range is. Just depends on how I want to present it to the fish. Gotcha. Cool. And then uh, do you have any other types of uh, flies with different, um, you know, more of the marabou or intruder types yep. of stuff? Yeah. I've got one I call the BNC thingy. The, the name came from a, from a friend. I was um, out fishing and I was having one of those days where I couldn't do anything wrong. You know, it was like fish, hit a fish, catch a fish, hook a fish, <laughs> lose a fish. It was just bang, bang, bang. And that doesn't happen very often on the ground. And he was watching me do this. And, and he walked up to me and he said, what are you using? And I said, this thing. And he said, well, what is that? And I said, I don't know. I haven't got given it a name. I, I said, it's black and chartreuse. So I don't know. It's a BNC thingy. <laughs> and, and so my nice. BNC thingy is, as a, is a tube fly. It's, it's has a marabou hackle and a, a bucktail wing. And it also has a, a bit of a dyed guinea on the front to uh, help um, flare that marabou out. And it's proved to be an extremely effective pattern. Uh, and it's a sort of a, it, you could tie it. It's almost an intruder. It just lacks the rear hackling to make it a, an intruder. But there's, I've actually tied it with rear hackling in an intruder style as well. Okay. And uh, it, it's, it works both ways. Uh, another fly that I use in dirty conditions, which has been very effective for me, is a black and purple marabou fly. It's quite large. Uh, I called it the dirty Harry for obvious reasons. <laughs> And it, it's uh, it's been it's also on YouTube as well, so on my website, and it's been a phenomenally good dirty water fly. Uh, it pushes a lot of water, and um, it comes through the water looking like a big ugly black leech, and uh, the fish are on it. Cool, cool. I've also had success with little flies. Uh, our fashion these days are to these big intruder styles and large flies, but I've had a lot of success with little tiny things too, you know, size sixes and size eights. And, um, it's amazing how small a fly a steelhead will hit. Yeah, that's for sure. No, that's cool. That's, uh, reminding me again, uh, that, that episode I was chatting with Simon, he was saying, we were talking a little bit about Atlantic salmon and he said, you know, in his box, he's got size 14s and 16s for Atlantics, which is like, you know, <laughs> those are big, <laughs> big fish, but yeah, for sure. Steel the same thing. You can go pretty small. I know definitely eights and tens for sure. Um, maybe you can talk a little more about, you really have a lot of knowledge here as far as the presentation and things like that. When you're, you know, depending on what you do, you know, I know you're, you're presenting the fly differently. How, how do you mend? Is mending a big part of how you're getting it or is it more where you're casting? It's, it's really strictly on the presentation I want to achieve. Um, 
if I want to, I will actually do things that are counterintuitive. For example, warm water. I have another fly I didn't talk about, the brown trout weemer, which is my first really successful fly that I designed myself. And it has some, I call it the weemer because it's half streamer, half wet fly, <laughs> and you can fish it both ways. And it looks like a little brown trout, baby brown trout, or, you know, any small minnow with a brownish back. And uh, in the early season, when the water's warm and the fish are aggressive, uh, I will cast this 90 degrees to the current, and then I'll make a downstream mend and put a big belly in my floating line. And what that does is it causes the uh, the fly to run downstream, then it turns the corner across stream, then it turns the corner again to come upstream. Mm-hmm. And I've often found the fish were hitting it as it turned the corner. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you can imagine if you're a steelhead sitting in a run and this this fly is going along and it's a good foot and a half, two feet over your head, and it's coming towards you and then it turns and goes sideways. Yeah. And to the fish, it looks like, oh, you know, that guy's trying to get away. <laughs> yeah. And they whack it. I've, I've, you know, as I said, this fishery is not – uh, an easy fishery where you're going to get, uh, you know, 20 fish in a day. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is, one is a good day. Yeah. And I've hooked seven on that fish in the same run on that fly in wow. the same run. Yeah. That's, that's uh, a really good day <laughs> yeah, for this river. It's a fantastic. Yeah. Day. That's cool. So, so when we're talking about mending, it's all about what I want to have that fly do. Um, so for example, uh, if I want to sink the fly, uh, as soon as I cast out, I'm casting out, say, uh, 45 degrees downstream. As soon as that fly is hitting the water, the line is hitting water, I'm already making an upstream mend. So I'm reorienting the uh, line as close to parallel to the current as I can possibly get it. Mm-hmm. My rod tip is high and back. And then as my rod, as my line begins to swing, I'm dropping my rod tip. So it's slowing the swing down. It, it's sinking the fly. Um, it's keeping the line straight as, po- as straight as possible. And I do this a lot with intermediate lines. And so you, what you would have is this presentation to the fish where the fly is dropping back towards the fish. And that's an important thing from a, a predator standpoint, because a minnow that's dropping back in the current is a minnow that is weak and is having trouble keeping its position. Yep. So that dropping back, uh, attitude of the fly is enticing towards the fish. And it's also getting the, the fly down to them without me having to add a lot of weight to the fly or, mm. or use a heavy tip or anything like that. It's sinking the fly on its own, which is one of the reasons why I can get away with very long leaders, you know, 10 yeah. foot, 15 foot leaders is that, 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 that dropping down action is, is sinking the fly down to the fish. Gotcha. Gotcha. And as well as the flies, are you using, um, beads and different, or how are you waiting your flies to get them down? Do you, do you use a lot of weight? Uh, generally no, but I do use weighted flies. I don't have any, uh, hang up about using weighted flies. It's just that I don't really need to use them that much on my river. Mm-hmm. I, I look more at, uh, the, the properties of the fly. I have a, an unweighted series of flies I call downforce flies. Uh, they don't have any gimmicks on them or any weight. They just rely on a heavy hook and uh, proper angling of the wing and keeping them sparse. And to just to give you a little indication of how effective they are, I was out with a friend the f- fishing this one run. He was using a standard uh, steelhead fly with a 15-foot type 3 leader, uh, a sink tip, I mean, and, uh, and a short leader. And I was using a floater with about 18 foot of fluorocarbon for a leader and one of my downforce flies, and I was hanging up on bottom more than he was. Wow. 
So if the fly is designed correctly, uh, it will get down fast and it will stay down. These things don't really plane down like they don't dive like a like a rapala would dive. But uh, it, if they get down, if you allow them to sink, the the pressure on them, the water pressure on them is enough to keep them down. And if you couple that with a long, thin fluorocarbon leader, uh, the pressure on the leader is not sufficient to pull them up. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's basically you're casting them out, you're letting them sink, and then you're letting them swing, and they'll stay down. So by just by manipulating the fly design, I'm able to get my flies down fast and keep them down without adding weight, which means they're more lively on the end of the leader. Yeah. You know, they don't come through like a, a rock, you know, exactly. they move in the current. Uh, but if I have to, uh, I mean, I've got other flies that I use for fishing Lake Erie for smallmouth bass and they weigh a ton, uh, and they're designed to get down 15, 20, 25 feet in Lake Erie. So I, I'm not a beyond using weight. I just use it where I need to. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So, so my, my steelhead flies to, to make it a short answer, my steelhead flies are unweighted. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, uh, yeah, I'm always, uh, I got a question for you come up here. I, I'm always thinking about, you know, if somebody's new and is in your area and they, they're getting on the Grand River and kind of the bring you back to, um, you know, where you start, like how you, you're looking at a run, where do you start to fish? Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's challenging for, for your river, rivers. But before we get there, I wanted to talk a little bit about maybe a turning point in your life or career, you know, something that, you know, I mean, you're a big name in, in fly fishing and you're working for a lot of these big companies, you know, as far as you're, you're there now, but uh, do you, do you have a point in your life that was kind of a big, maybe a big struggle or something that kind of was the big change and got to you to where you are? Yeah, I, I probably, uh, uh, time out in the river with my dad. Uh, and what that did for me, basically it made me a self-reliant type of fisherman who, uh, taught himself and went out and did things, you know, figured things out for himself. And the reason for this is my dad grew up in London, England, and never ever had a fishing rod in his hands. And so when we came over to Canada, uh, you know, he had no exposure to fishing. And it was my neighbors that took, took me fishing. And one day, I guess I was about 10 years old, I decided about time I taught my dad how to fish, which is kind of back to front. Hmm. Your father's supposed to be teaching you how to fish. And yeah. I took my, I took my, my dad rented a, this little tin boat. We went out to St. Lawrence River to catch perch. And uh, he hooked something big and he's hauling it in. And uh, he's very excited. I mean, this is his first real significant fish in his entire life. And he gets it near the boat and I look over and it's a huge eel. Wow. Now, I don't want, I don't want that thing in the boat. I mean, if you've ever hooked a big eel and you pull it in a no. boat, it's a night, it's a nightmare. Oh, really? It squirms everywhere. It, and it's, it, it's thrashing like mad. And it's as slime as uh, anything you can imagine. And how and long, just, how, how long is this fit? Uh, this this fish? thing's probably three feet long. Oh, wow. And probably an inch and a half in diameter. And, uh, it, he, and I said, leave it in the water, dad. I'll unhook it. And he was just too excited. He just yanked it out of the water and dumped it in the middle of the boat. <laughs> and it just thrashed everywhere. And it, it, it knotted up his line full, full of slime. And that was uh, kind of like the last thing ever time I ever took my dad fishing. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't think he ever wanted to go fishing after that experience. I mean, the boat stunk afterwards because in the hot sun, all that oh, yeah. eel goo was cooking and all our yeah. stuff was slimed. So it turned him off of fishing. So it meant from that point on, if I was to learn anything, uh, 
I would have to be self-taught. That's cool. I, I, uh, there was nobody out there who was going to hold my hand. And so it's made, meant that when I started getting into steelheading, I took a, a, a very analytical approach and I went out and found out things for myself. Of course, I relied on advice from other people, but I didn't just say, okay, fine, that person said I should fish this way. I'd go check it out and I'd sort of say, okay, why is it working or why is it not working? And I would always be asking these questions. And it, mm -hmm. I think it comes from the fact that as a kid, I had to figure this all out for myself. Yep. That is, that's such a great point. And I think of my own story, which is a little bit the opposite of that. And I, and I totally agree with you. I, I basically had a dad that was fully in it, guided, you know, fly fishing, everything. And because he was there, it's like, I learned everything from him and didn't really go outside of that. And to the detriment a little bit because he was kind of a little bit anti, uh, spay, you know, he just kind of had fished, you know, since the beginning and never really got into it. So I kind of took that up and never got into spay casting until a lot, lot later. And actually I think that's a good thing now because it gives me a good perspective, but, um, but you know, at the time it kind of held me up. So I, I, I hear that it's great. Basically not having your dad forced you to go out and just like a lot of, a lot of us should do just learn on your own and life experiences and all that. I mean, I did rely on advice from other people, obviously. Sure. And uh, I, I, but the thing is, I always tested that advice. Um, the thing is, when you're when you're being taught by a parent or uh, or somebody you respect, highly respect, you tend not to test what they tell you, and uh, which is perfectly understandable. I wouldn't either under those circumstances. But the fact that I was taking advice from people who, you know, I I just knew them; they were there, and they would say, "Oh, we should do this." Well, I would go try it, but I would always take a testing attitude towards it and not just simply assume it's going to work automatically. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And that's, that's pretty much for me, eventually, you know, I was heading up to my first trip up to BC and I knew that, you know, a two-handed rod was going to be helpful. So I, I picked it up then and, and it was well, well worth the, you know, the effort because it uh, got me into a lot more fish, but, um, no, this is, this is a uh, good, I'm, uh, I think we're going to probably eventually run out of time here because uh, I've got so many, uh, you're doing a great job, you know, explaining this stuff. And I think, you know, it's definitely a good, um, you know, your perspective on things. Maybe you could chat a little bit about, um, you know, we're, we're talking about um, people that influenced you. Do you have a few, you know, a mentor or two, a few people over your life that, that helped you get to where you're at? Yeah, one was kind of ironic. Uh, and when I first got to Southern Ontario, I wanted to get back into fly fishing. And, uh, but I didn't know the area and I, you know, I didn't know what opportunities there were. And I had a lot of, uh, camera gear because I was a ex semi pro uh, photographer. So I want to get rid of this camera gear. I put an ad in the newspaper and the guy who, uh, answered the ad to pick up my, uh, camera gear was a, a former guide from the bow river in Calgary. Hmm. So um, he ended up, uh, swapping fly gear for camera gear. And then he started taking me on the river. Cool. And so he introduced me to trout, uh, and that by extension turned me into a steelhead fisherman, uh, because up to that point, my focus had been entirely warm water fishing. Okay. There was no trout opera trout opportunities where I used to live. And so that was the thing. I mean, I started to learn how to nymph, for example, I learned how to present a dry fly, uh, up to that point, I'd been a hundred percent streamer fisherman you know, casting for smallmouth bass. So, uh, it, it, uh, he, he did, you know, introduce me to these things and, uh, and then I took it from there. Hmm. 
And and what um, is he around, or is he? Uh, I'm not sure if you mentioned his name there. Oh, I've lost track of him now. I mean, oh, okay. it's been this is this yeah. is years ago. So back um, in the day, sure. Yeah, uh, you know how it is with work and everything else and families. You're all going in different directions and doing different things. Yeah. So um, I, I've kind of lost track of Mike. He says goes back about twenty uh, something years. Gotcha, gotcha. So yeah, that's cool. Actually, he's longer than twenty five years, roughly, even longer. So I mean. We haven't seen each other in a dog's age, but he did get me started. He, he he was provided the gear. He got me started also in rod building, and he got me started in, in fly tying as well. Mm-hmm. He gave me a whole bunch of his surplus fly tying stuff to get started. And, uh, you know, he also showed me how to build a rod, and then I went from there. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm always uh, trying to uh, – That's part of this is just connect the dots, and that's why I love talking to new people that I haven't, you know, talked to before because – you know, I hear other people and then, you know, you'll be connected to somebody else that lie. That's, that, that's part of the, what I'm doing here with the show is just, you know, providing that history for folks. But, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let me bring it back to that uh, question I mentioned before. So, so you're, you're new to a river and, um, you know, how do you, how do you get started? I mean, the Grand sounds like a very challenging river if you've never fished before to know where to start. Um, and you said maybe just cover the whole river. Is that, do you think the best way when you're new or do you have any tips for people that are, uh, oh, Oh no! I, for me, it's all about observation. Um, walk up to first off, ask questions. You know, get as much information as you can before you show up. But when you, get, I think there's a tendency for us, and we all do it. I mean, I do it too. You get excited. You're in a new spot. You get excited. You gear up. You run down to the river and you start fishing. Whereas really, it's just sit back and take a look, and and think to yourself, okay, I'm looking at this current. This current's moving through there. What does that suggest? Well, that suggests maybe it's a bit deeper there. So maybe I should start there. And, you know, where are the fish likely to hold? You know, ask yourself these questions. Where, where, if I was a steelhead, where would I be? Right. You know, where would I be going up? And sometimes it's obvious, sometimes it's not. But um, uh, some things I tell people when I, I, I'm teaching them uh, to fish is look for bookends. Uh, and what I mean by that is an obstacle at the beginning of a run and an obstacle at the end of the run with some slower, deeper water in between. If you can find a run that's bookended by obstacles, uh, shallow riffles, you're likely to find fish in the middle. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can use the Atlantic salmon approach uh, where, you know, in the evening they're likely to be at one end of the pool and in the morning they're uh, likely to be at the other end. You can take, you can take those kinds of approaches. But basically I'm saying look, look for these structures that are going to cause a fish to stop and halt. And, uh, as I said, and in our river, the looking for book, looking for depth and looking for those bookends are, are usually, usually going to get you into fish. Mm-hmm. And quite often the fish will get over the obstacle. They'll, and they'll hold in the first deep, slow water they can find. And that's where to start fishing. Mm-hmm. Perfect. And so, I mean, that's probably the simplest tip because people can see the bookends. Yeah. You know, they can see those riffles that are act as obstacles for the fish, especially when the water is lower. Mm-hmm. It's tougher when the water is up. The river tends to go very bland. When the water goes high, it looks featureless. But as it goes down, you begin to see those features. Okay. And you'd be able to fish them more effectively. And do you find that, um, sounds like you're, t- I mean, when you get to these runs, you guys have pretty large, long runs on the Grand. Do you find that you're, I, I know uh, Jack Mitchell, who I talked to on you know episode two, mentioned kind of the heads and tails, really focusing on you mm-hmm. know, those what's you know the bookends or the heads and tails do you do you t- typically do that or are you fishing the whole run all the way through the guts and everything 
because it's uh, that limestone bottom, bottom that erodes in an irregular way, uh, you often find that you have to go through the whole run uh, because there could be a dent in the middle where the fish are sitting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the, if, if it was a straight gravel bottom, yeah, you would say that could be at the tail or the head. Um, but because of this irregular bottom, uh, you, you're, you sometimes find them in unusual places. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so it means if you, uh, if you're not sure where those spots are, you, you should go the whole run. Gotcha. Uh, and the other thing that you, I run into with our river is at, when the flows are running around average rates, there's some parts of the river that are quite slow moving and the fish treat it almost like it's a lake and they kind of move around. <laughs> and so they're not stuck in that one spot as they would be if the flow rate was higher. Uh, they're quite happy to move around. So, uh, sometimes you can say they're going to be in this spot, but a lot of times you're going to catch them in some place that you've never hooked a fish before. And you you say to yourself, okay, why was that fish there? And well, it's a flow rate. Hmm. It it, it was comfortable moving around. Mm -hmm. So as I say, I do suggest to people, if they don't know the the fish holding spots work the whole run. Yeah. Yeah. Just cover until you get into a a touch or a grab or some, some, uh, positive reinforcement that's right that's right and then make note of it because it, it's uh, uh if the fish are there today there's likely going to be a fish there tomorrow nice uh one of the other pieces of visa and i got this from another guy and it made perfect sense uh i fished this uh, river for smallmouth bass in the summer and, and his comment was and it's quite true uh if uh you find a spot that holds bass in the summer it'll probably hold steelhead in the winter hmm and uh, because they tend to like the same kinds of things um not totally the same but uh keep in mind when we're talking about steelhead they're migrating as opposed to feeding we're not talking about resident trout feeding Mm -hmm. uh so they're looking for uh a route they're looking for a highway up the river and that highway normally takes them through some of the the prime smallmouth water Mm. and the type of structure that smallmouth like also provides shelter for steelhead yeah What's so your, if you yeah go ahead. So if you catch a bass in a spot and you're catching lots of bass in a spot, make note of it because you probably <laughs> find a steelhead there in the fall. That's a cool. That's a cool tip. Yeah. So what's your uh, favorite? Do you have a favorite bass fly you, you like to use? Uh, I have a whole bunch of bass flies, yeah. but uh, the um, I generally uh, lately I've I've been using a lot of rabbit strip wing bass flies. Uh, they proved to be quite successful for me. <laughs> um, but I, I've my Fly uh, habits tend to change from year to year because I'm always trying stuff. Uh, I've got I've got one thing I do, which is I don't recommend to people, but when I find something is really working and it's worked well for me, I stop using it. Uh, I want to go on to something else. I want to try something else. Yeah. So uh, like my brown trout weimer, incredibly effective pattern for both bass and steelhead. I've caught 15 different species on that fly, including saltwater. Jeez. And and I hardly use it because I know I'm going to throw it in the water. I'm going to catch something. So let me try something else. Nice. You know, cool. I'll, I'll definitely uh, make note of that one here in the show notes. Uh, I'll try to find it. I guess a lot of these, you have uh, videos you said on YouTube. Yes, that's yeah, correct. Yes. Perfect. Um, you've talked a lot about uh, definitely some tips and uh, things here. Uh, do you have a specific, maybe uh, I guess we get a little bit into to either spade casting or just a general steelhead tip that could help somebody. Um, you know, whether they're on the Grand or any other steelhead river? Yes. If you're, if you're going to, especially on a, a big river like the Grand, uh, I would 
it's uh, we talk about the fact that you don't catch fish by casting, you catch fish by presentation. But the reality is when you're dealing with a big river and big runs and you have to cover water, uh, put the effort into learning to cast well, um, to cover, be able to cover that water. Uh, if you can only cast 60 feet and the run is 100 feet wide and you can only cast 60, well, you're only covering 60. There's another 40 that you're not touching. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, and not only that, but you're, it's more enjoyable. You're not being frustrated. Uh, you're, you're spending more time with your fly in the water and you're less time fiddling and, and messing around with things. Um, you see guys who don't cast well and they're, are they're, they're fighting their cast and they're, they're, they're ca- making the same cast two or three times to get the fly line out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, so spend some time learning to cast well. You don't have to be a championship caster, but if you can cast reasonably well, you will catch more fish. Uh, and the thing is, the other aspect to that is you should be out there concentrating on your presentation. Your casting should be, you know, just a means to an end. So you shouldn't be concentrating on your casting. You should be concentrating on your presentation. If you're having struggles with your casting, you're not thinking about your presentation. Hmm. And, and so, um, that effort in uh, improving your spay casting is definitely going to help you to catch more fish. Mm. You'll cover more water and you'll cover it more effectively because you're now concentrating on your ca- your fishing and not your casting. Yeah, and, and do you is the best way to to get there is just to get out and cast, or do you have any any tips on helping people? Well, I'm a yeah, I'm a certified casting instructor, so the answer is get casting lessons. There you it go. It helps. Yeah, it helps. Uh, and the other thing which goes along with this and this kind of it's going to sound funny coming from a guy in the industry, but you'll save money because I see too many people buying lines yeah. instead of getting casting instruction or changing their rods. Oh, it's a crappy rod. I'm going to get a different right. rod. Uh, no, there's nothing wrong with your rod. No. <laughs> you know, there's nothing wrong with your line. Yeah. Um, so they're buying tackle to solve casting problems. And of course, that's good for the tackle companies. But the reality is you'll stay in it longer and it's long term it's better for the tackle companies because you will fish more you will be more successful you'll be out in the water more Mm -hmm. you'll fish longer uh so you know a couple hundred dollars spent on casting lessons will probably save you a lot of money and tackle down the road yeah and and you'll be be a more effective fisherman where's a good way as the uh, federation of fly fishers is that a good place if you don't know any casting instructors instructors in your area yeah yeah, they have a, a list of all the instructors you can put in your uh, your province and that and or your state. Yeah, and it'll sh- tell you where all the uh, casting instructors are for your area. Yeah. So the the FFF site is a good way to start. Cool. Yeah, I was uh, yeah I, had, I was having a conversation with Brian Chow and you know he brought up just that point we're talking. I mean, there's so much information online. It's almost it's it's overload, right? It's just there's people that out there it. and they're and they're just reading and reading and reading and what they need to do is get on the water and probably, you know, practice and practice and practice and also get a lesson. And so, That's yeah, right. yeah, it's kind of backwards the way the, uh, the internet and hopefully, and the, yeah. I was going to say the other thing is, uh, let's say for example, you're a single handed trout guy and you want to, to get your first spay rod, learn to spay cast and get out there and swing for steelhead. A lot of guys make the mistake of buying their gear first and then figuring out how they're going to learn how to cast it. <laughs> they should in reality, take some lessons first before they spend a nickel and tackle. Yeah. And you can learn to spay cast on a single handed rod and, and a good instructor will have gear that they can lend you to, to learn on. You will have a much better idea of what you, you will, what works for you. If you've already had the opportunity to, to learn. 
Then when you go to the store, you're going to make a more intelligent buying decision uh, as opposed to just buying what somebody else suggests. And then you find out it's not working for you because it's not good for your river sure. or, you know, or it's not the kind of fishing you like to do. Uh, one of the things I, uh, I, I talk to guys and who are trout fishermen and say, do you like, to, are you a dry fly fisherman? Are you a nymphing guy? What, what's your preference? And if a guy is a really diehard purist dry fly guy, I am not going to start him off with a heavy skagit rig with a big weighted flies. Mm-hmm. Just not going to, you know, psychologically, it's not going to work for the guy. <laughs> you know, he's chucking all this weight. I, I'll set him off on a, a finesse rig because it's going to be more in tune with this, his trout fishing, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And so those kinds of things, try to find out where the guy sets. As an instructor, I try to figure out, you know, where's he coming from? What's he like to do? Uh, and then, you know, I pull out the equipment that I think is going to match that for him. And we'll start him off with that. And then, you know, he's, he's got a better basis for making a buying decision, decision down the road. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, as far as I got a few more uh, questions here, uh, Peter, I think we're, we're going to be uh, wrapping this up here in a bit, but I, I want to touch base with you on a couple things. Um, one of them, just again, getting back to the river as far as stepping down. This is a you know question that comes up quite mm-hmm. a bit. Do you have a recommendation like how fast you move through a run? Yeah, so it all depends on clarity okay. and current speed. Uh, if you've got a lot of clarity, you can you can step down quite aggressively because the fish can see the fly from quite a distance. Uh, if the river is dirty, uh, and especially if it's fast moving because your your fly could be coming across faster than you would like, take your time, make smaller steps. You know, be prepared to cast to the to the same area a couple of times if you think there might be a fish there. Mm-hmm. Because in, in dirty, faster conditions, the fly may come across, you may not see it the first time. So be more more deliberate in dirty conditions. And uh, if you have had a touch, don't go back and bash to the same spot right away. Back up, uh, go back a few feet, take a minute to rest, come back down again, and you'll, you'll um, have a better shot of that fish. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And uh, do you do any uh, use any skaters or anything um, over there? Uh, I don't use skaters myself, but we've got a, a local fellow who is a, a biologist who work, used to work with the government, uh, and he is a phenomenal fisherman. And a guy by the name of Larry Halleck, and he loves skating flies for steelhead, and he does extremely well. So um, it, it's it's definitely a, a method. But you have to know what you're doing. You have to know where you're fishing. And mm-hmm. uh, Larry does, so he's quite successful. Nice. But, you know, I'm more of a – I've always been more of a streamer fisherman. Mm-hmm. So I take a, a more of a streamer approach for steelhead. I, sure. I am thinking always terms of minnow patterns. And so that's usually my approach. Yeah, yeah, that's good. What uh, – I had a, a note here about your uh, guideline days. I'm not even sure what that's about. Is that um, – can you tell me a little bit more about that? Was that earlier on? Uh, yeah, that was a little over 10 years ago. I got in with Guideline, which is a Scandinavian company. Uh, and uh, that was my pro, my first pro staff experience. Oh, okay. And um, so I, I uh, put my effort into uh, learning the Scandinavian methods for uh, catching fish hmm. uh, and the tackle and the gear and that sort of thing. And yeah. so that was that was my pro staff start. Gotcha. And how are those Scandian, uh, Scandinavian methods different from what you're doing now? Uh, really not that much different. Um, I mean, I do, I use all methods, uh, I, you know, all line types and, uh, I generally go Scandinavian style often just, I'm looking at river conditions. Uh, and if I figure, um, 
that faster, higher presentation, or uh, if the river is lower, um, or the type of fly I'm using doesn't require uh, it gets down on its own. I don't have to worry about getting it down. I might go with Scandinavian. A lot of it, a lot of it, believe it or not, is being driven by the amount of drag in the fly. High drag flies don't uh, extract from the water easily. And so when you're using a Scandinavian system, sometimes it'll be hard to get them out of the water mm-hmm. or it forces me to use a shorter leader than I would like. And that's so, and I might shift over to Skagit. But, um, you know, if I'm using a, a fly that extracts easily, then there's no reason why I can't use a, a 15 or 20 foot leader instead of a sink tip and get mm-hmm. it down to the same depth. Mm-hmm. Cool. So, yeah, I, I'm kind of eclectic when, when it comes to that. I, I go with the conditions and what I feel like doing that day. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, but do you have a, uh, love the, uh, the, the fishing story. I know you've told some, uh, some good, uh, stories here. Do you have one that, uh, like a, either a kind of a old crazy fishing story or a memorable fish you want to talk about? Yeah, I have a memorable fish and it was a 10 inch long rainbow trout, hmm. baby, baby steelhead. And, uh, it was not, that it was a great fish or anything of that nature it was because it was in an impossible position it was in a a little back eddy underneath some foam underneath an overhanging cedar tree that was guarded by a very fast chute that shot down in front of the back eddy and i sat there and for about 10 minutes going there's got to be a fish in there how do i get a dry fly in there and have it stay there long enough for a fish to hit it. And I figured out that what I have to do with an aerial mend and how I'd have to sidearm it in there. And the fly landed about two inches from the foam. And it was there for about three seconds before it was yanked out by the, by the uh, fast shoot. And that was long enough. He took it. Ah. Uh, And it was like to sit there and plot it out and then make that, you know, you've got one cast yeah. and, and to make it happen. It was like, as I say, and it was only about a 10 inch fish, Yeah, but it was to, to, to conquer the circumstance, which made it fun. Yeah. That's good. I, I tend to, I tend to remember those more than I remember the big ones. Yeah. If, yeah. if it came, the big one came in a relatively easy fashion. I did nothing special to get it. I tend to forget about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if, if there was some challenge to it, if I had to, you know, figure it out, uh, do something unusual. Those are the ones I remember. Yeah, that's a great story. I think we, I think people tend to get a little too caught up on fish size and fish numbers, you know. And really, when it comes down to it, it's like more of the experiences. And that one right there is is pretty. I as you were saying it, I was just picturing, you know, myself in that same situation and, and knowing how challenging that is. That's that's pretty cool. Uh, Cool, Peter. So, uh, yeah, I guess maybe one more question for you on the, um, as far as a resource, we've talked a lot, a lot here. Do you have like, um, you know, maybe, a, do you know of any online resources out there? Would you recommend that people can kind of get up to speed on, on, you know, just steelhead fishing in general? Um, I would look at, personally, what I've always relied on for uh, steelhead fishing, uh, just generally, is looking at some of the better names in, in the business, like you mentioned, Simon, uh, Deck Hogan, mm-hmm. uh, going back to some of the old stuff, uh, Trey Coombs and people like that. Yeah. Uh, the guys have cut their teeth in the early days of uh, fly fishing for steelhead. And the thing I, I, I like to put across is just because the information is 40 years old doesn't mean it's not current and yep. useful. I mean, there's still the same fish. And if that method and that fly caught fish 30, 40 years ago, it'll, it'll catch fish today. For sure. And so I, I, I tend to run everything from really current stuff all the way back, you know, 
through the early days of steelhead fishing out west. Yeah. And look at all those old names as well as the current guys as well. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Then that's, I've had Trey on the show and it's funny that question I, I like to ask just because it, you know, it kind of helps people, but, um, really that's what I'm trying to build here is just, you know, an online resource. And I think, you mm-hmm. know, what you've provided today is, you know, is going to help a lot of people that, that listen to this one. So, so I appreciate that. Um, yeah. So what's, uh, what do you have going in the next uh, six months or so? Do you have anything you want to talk about as far as, uh, anything new or anything upcoming for you or your, uh, the companies you're working with? Well, I think uh, from a company perspective, one of the most interesting uh, developments from Loomis has been uh, the new IMX Pro rods. Um, everybody talks about rods being lighter, faster, stronger, blah, 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 right. blah, blah. I like to talk about what it does for us as fishermen. What does this rod do that's a little – because it's always marginal increases. We're not locking dramatic changes. The thing I found about the, the new IMX that I've been fishing is – they're so easy to cast well, uh, and they're light, and they work very well. A lot of light rods out there, but they they're low effort, but they they, they make your job of casting well easier. And um, I'm not sure what Steve Raja magic he worked on those blanks to make it do that. But the very first time I cast one, it threw this lovely loop, and I went, "Oh, I didn't do anything; it just went." <laughs> and and this has been consistent. I've got six of them, and they're all the same. Uh, they all throw a lovely line without really having to really pay close attention. They're very, very easy casting rods. Mm. So, you know, they're a mid range price point. Uh, so they'd be very good for somebody who is, you know, average fly fishing experience. And, um, I think they, people, when they fish them, they'll find that, you know, they can cast them quite easily. They do cast well. They, they are not fussy rods. You know, you can put, broad range of lines on them. They don't seem to care. Hmm. Uh, I've got a video of me out with the uh, 11 foot, 11 inch uh, seven weight spay. And I ran, I was using rage airflow rage heads on them. I ran everything from a 390 all the way up to a 480 and it didn't matter. Yeah. You know, so, I mean, in the spay business, line choice can be really irritating. You can, you know, have a hard time matching lines to rods. These rods don't care. Anything that's close, it's going to work. Cool. Yeah, so I think from from a product standpoint, it's that I think those IMX rods, IMX Pro rods, uh, are will make a difference for people. Okay, and they're not they're not super expensive either. Okay, and uh, yeah, and I guess you've got uh, some shows you'll be at that people can find yeah. you, and yeah. they can probably find a list of that. Um, well, where where would be a good place that where they can uh, if somebody wanted to get in touch with you if they had questions about the you know anything we talked about today. Well, if they're going to do the shows, I'm going to be uh, at uh, the bo- uh, spring fishing and boat show. Uh, starting tomorrow. And then I'll be at the uh, Toronto Sportsman Show. Um, I also uh, usually run a spring uh, spay tune-up session through the first cast fly shop in Guelph. And what we do is we just get people out in the Speed River. And it's open to both beginners and people who just want to, uh, you know, get the rust off, the winter rust off their short casting shoulders. And uh, we also, I, I spend a lot of time on, matching the tackle up to what they want to do because a lot of guys come in with tackle that's not working together that well so we go through that whole process of not just casting but also making sure everything matches up and Hmm. you know it's making it the job easier for them okay good good and uh and hookedforlife.ca is the best place that's with the uh, the four is the number four um that's the best place they can get in touch with you that's the easiest place to get in touch with me uh i've got uh all the contact information is there, phone numbers, everything else. 
and uh, just drop me an email to at info at hookedforlife.ca and uh, it'll get to me and I answer all sorts of questions. It's um, I also respond to my YouTube comments, uh, mm-hmm. Facebook. I'm on Facebook as well. I have a Hooked for Life page on Facebook. Okay. So people have, you know, they can ask questions, talk to me throughout any of those mediums and it works fine. Good. Good deal. Well, I'll provide links to all, all those uh, resources. And uh, yeah, Peter, I just wanted to thank you for coming on. You've provided a bunch of oh, great, great resources. And I think, um, you know, your perspective on things and getting people to think a little bit differently, I think, is, is one thing that, that was really great about this, this show today. So uh, thanks, thanks for coming on and uh, hope to, oh, to see you soon. Okay, great. I enjoyed being on the show. Thanks for inviting me. Okay, see ya. Okay, right. Bye-bye. So there you go. If you want to find all the show notes with all the links we covered, just go to wetflyswing.com slash Peter Charles. If you like the tips in this episode, go to wetflyswing.com slash free and get the Steelhead Tips PDF Quick Guide, which includes a summary of all the best tips from all the episodes so far. If you get a chance, please share this episode with at least one person so we can help that person get into maybe their first steelhead. Thanks again for stopping by to check out the show today. I'm looking forward to hopefully catching up with you soon and maybe even seeing you on the river. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com. And if you found this episode helpful, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.